Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Our Changing World. It's a sunny morning in early spring and I'm standing in my backyard having a look at my lawn. Now I haven't mowed all winter and the growth has really started to take off. It's, um, it's nearly ankle high in some places. I've been thinking about um, going round to my father-in-law's place so I could borrow his motor mower. But then I saw this press release from the Auckland City Council. A no-mo pilot at Greyland Park is being funded by the Waitemata Local Board to improve biodiversity outcomes. Board Chair Richard Northey says the Local Board are pleased to fund the pilot, which supports one of their key priorities, environmental protection and enhancement. And that got me interested. Personally, I hate mowing the lawn. Um, I used to mow both our lawn and our neighbour's lawn when I was a kid, but, you know, how else was I going to earn some pocket money? So I wanted to know, how come the Auckland Council isn't mowing their lawn? It all started with this lady who lives on Dickens Street in Greyland, who, after five years of emailing councillors and mayors, she found out that I existed and she sent me an email asking me to... Um, consider not mowing um, the bank outside of her house because it's quite steep and it's underutilized and well there isn't even a footpath through most of it and that's how it all started it was um, the community asking for help. This is Adriana Christie she's an elected member of the Waitamata local board and she championed the Greyland no mow pilot as the holder of the parks sport and recreation portfolio. It's pretty big. Uh, it um, covers a third of the park. It's all on a slope. And basically what we did is that we asked community facilities to map out the park and to show us where there is um, certain slopes that are, number one, really complicated to mow, and two, that are prone for um, biodiversity where butterflies and bees and all other pollinators can coexist in that habitat and um and then the contractor for three months hasn't actually touched that bank and it's thriving it's beautiful and if adriana has her way Graylin will just be the beginning there is people in freeman's bay that want to do the same thing at western park um we're looking for someone to take ownership for mount eden you know so if if we find people that become the ambassadors of their local parks, then it would be way easier for us to roll it out. And then this trial can just be a pilot of learnings of, you know, what plants grew well, what's the planting plan looking like, how long should we do the maintenance for, or what should we maintain? You know, all the learnings from this trial will be great for the future. Right now, council contractors mow more than 50 million square metres of land across the Auckland region. That includes sports fields, parks, roadside berms. It all adds up pretty quick. 
And then you have to think about all the private lawns, like the one in my backyard. Dr. Bruce Burns thinks a lot about all these lawns. He's a plant ecologist at Auckland University. You know, they're, they're pervasive in our cities. Um, if you look at Auckland and uh, doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations, um, you know, uh, lawns or grassy areas, urban grasslands, occupy about 15 to 20% of the total urban area. That means that um, we're actually uh, dealing with an, an area of, of lawns in Auckland of somewhere between 150 to 200 square kilometres. It's actually a huge part of our urban systems. And so, so we started to think about, well, you know, how are we actually managing these? Uh, what's in them? And, you know, could we perhaps manage them in, in a way that's um, uh, more beneficial both financially and, and for the environment? First, let's talk about the money. Lawn care is expensive. There's the cost of buying a mower, petrol costs, fertilisers, pesticides, irrigation, plus the 20 bucks you have to give your neighbour's kid to do the actual mowing. One of Bruce Byrne's students is Olivia Rook Devoy. She surveyed a thousand Auckland households and got some truly astonishing figures. The results found that Aucklanders spend over $131 million a year on lawn upkeep. $131 million just in Auckland City, just in one year. Yeah, I think that financial cost is, is a big factor, um, you know, particularly with the, the figures that Olivia mentioned are for private people. And you've got to add on top of that, you know, the councils, particularly, they spend, uh, you know, millions, and, you know, if not hundreds of millions themselves in terms of uh, lawn upkeep. Then there's the environmental costs. All those lawn mowers are sucking in petrol and pumping out CO2. You know, you think of it as only a small activity, but this is occurring on a weekend often um, in hundreds, if not thousands of properties across the city. The petrol consumed by that, that activity and the emissions from your lawn mowers can actually have contribute significantly to uh, both carbon dioxide and hydrocarbon emissions in the atmosphere. Um, so there's a study in Melbourne which showed that over a weekend, lawn mowing contributed, uh, I think it was 5% to CO2 emissions for that weekend in that city. Now, you might be thinking, well, what about the climate benefits of lawns? Don't they absorb CO2 as well? Well, yes. In fact, natural grasslands are major carbon sinks. They can even be better than forests because they store most of that carbon underground where it's safe from wildfires. But when you mow a lawn regularly, it significantly reduces the growth of roots, which means less carbon's being locked away, much less than is reduced from your petrol mower. OK, so I'm in my backyard again and I've decided not to borrow my father-in-law's gas-guzzling motor mower. Luckily... I've got a little battery-powered weed whacker, so I'll just fire that up. It takes a bit longer, but at least now I can mow the lawn guilt-free, right? Well, it turns out, no. Whether you're using a petrol mower or an electric mower or even one of those old-fashioned muscle-powered mowers, you're still contributing to air pollution. And in fact, as I was cutting that grass, I was enjoying the smell of that pollution. Cut a lawn on a summer's day and you get that fresh, quite attractive smell often that comes out of cut grass. So what happens is that the cut cells or the broken cells within the grass, um, some chemicals are exposed to the air, they, they uh, volatilise, they turn into gases and um, are released in the atmosphere. And funnily enough, those uh, can oxidise and form part of air pollution. So if you get too much of this cut grass around, you're actually contributing 
to um, compounds which which form smog. What are these actually doing? Like, are they contributing to um, greenhouse gases, or are they just sort of you know bad for you to breathe in? What's the issue with these compounds? Well, I think it's both. I think it is uh, both a greenhouse uh, adding to greenhouse gas um, compounds, but it is also a, a well, you know, I don't want to overstate over, um, it, but they will contribute to um, compounds which are bad for, for your health, um, as air pollutants are. These gases are called green leaf volatiles. They're actually kind of fascinating. They seem to have evolved as a kind of chemical alarm call. So if a plant's getting munched by aphids or caterpillars, the smell from these broken plant cells attract things like ladybugs and parasitic wasps to get rid of the pests. Other studies suggest they might have antimicrobial properties to protect the plant from infection. But, as Bruce Burns said, it's possible to have too much of a good thing. That same study in Melbourne he mentioned earlier found that greenleaf volatiles released from lawn mowing made up 11% of hydrocarbon emissions in one weekend. Plus, Olivia and Bruce say lawn care often leads to other kind of environmental damage. Lawn care can have quite an impact on human health, uh, especially with the use of fertilisers and pesticides. And a study in America actually showed that children will encounter pesticides uh, where they live and play, just from general use and lawn mowing. And, I mean, those fertilisers, particularly nitrogen fertilisers, have a very significant contribution to greenhouse gases as well. Most of these agricultural crops... um, have a lot of regulations about fertiliser and pesticide use, but there are very few associated with lawns, even though it's of an equivalent size. And uh, in the United States, again, the study has shown it's like the, the second most, the second largest irrigated crop, if you like, in the country. So it's a, it's a major activity if you, if you add it all together. Yeah, 1.5 trillion litres each summer day. Every day in the US irrigated onto lawns. So it's an interesting social um, you know, phenomenon. I think it's because, uh, and I think this is why we haven't looked at it very much in the past, is because everybody does a small amount and it's almost trivialised, you know, that, you know, how could my small amount of lawn mowing um, contribute to, um, you know, a, a large environmental impact? But I, I it's the idea that, you know, it's not only you, but it's, um, you know, everyone across the city maybe uh, will be mowing a lawn within, you know, uh, once every couple of weeks. So it's just that combination of of hundreds and thousands of people doing uh, the same activity. Even if we set aside pollution, there are other reasons you might want to ease up on the mowing and let your grass grow a bit longer. In terms of their ability to support uh, invertebrates and other other biodiversity, uh, it's of huge benefit. Um, So there's quite a a great study done in the United States where they looked at the invertebrate communities and lawns of different heights. And of course, as, as the grass got larger, got taller, um, the number and types of invertebrates in those, uh, in those grasslands increased dramatically. There was a really interesting study done in Germany where they uh, mowed a meadow on a warm day and found that uh, the bee population, 90,000 bees, were killed per hectare. 90,000? Yeah, so up to 50% of the uh, foraging population. On top of that, letting grass grow longer increases the amount of water which can be absorbed in the soil. That reduces stormwater runoff and keeps the grass greener for longer in dry spells. Although we should say dry grass is a very significant fire risk. So if you live in an area that's prone to drought, make sure to keep the grass well down near your house. 
You also need to keep on top of predator trapping because long grass can make good habitat for rats and mice. But if you can mitigate the downsides, the biodiversity benefits of longer lawns can be significant. Beck Stanley's an ecologist and the curator of the Auckland Botanical Gardens. For the last few years, they've been running a meadow trial. Yeah, since 2014, so this must be year five or six, it was really just us starting to think more critically about our lawns. We've got an approach to gardening here at Auckland Botanic Gardens, which we call sustainable horticulture practice. And all of those things that you do to, a, to an urban lawn run counter really to a lot of environmental principles in gardening and we're also thinking about it from the perspective of our visitors and Auckland residents and if they start thinking critically about their lawns too what can we come up with um, together that that might be a suitable alternative. So the trial started with the view to thinking about what happens if you change the frequency of mowing a lawn. If we started mowing at different frequencies what do we get? Ideally we want a really pretty meadow type environment with lots of flowers in it and the other thing we started thinking about research overseas shows that meadows which are actually native to Europe and they're not native to here but meadows overseas tend to be better on really low fertility soils at least for us here at Auckland Botanic Gardens our soil is quite fertile and what you get in the fertile um, system is really vigorous grass that's why you fertilize lawns because grass loves fertilizer so we started to think, well, if you've got a fertile system to start with, is there anything you can do about that? Can you ever change that? And it turns out you can. And from overseas research, we've learned that you can lower soil fertility by, for example, scraping off topsoil, which is a bit of an anathema to a gardener. So we didn't go down that way. Um, the other way you can lower it is by adding carbon. So that's in the form of sugar, sawdust, or wood chips. And the idea behind that is that Carbon feeds soil microbes, which eat, eat the carbon, do really well, multiply, start to dominate that soil ecosystem, and they start eating the nitrogen, which is the food for plants. So essentially, if you feed the soil and the soil microbes, they start taking food away from your plants, and you might weaken the grasses, and it might mean that the other things that aren't grasses that are also in lawns start to do well as well, and they're usually the more pretty things, although having said that, grass and flower can be really pretty. So really, that's, that's where we started with this work. So, I mean, what do you get in a meadow that, that isn't just long grass? Yeah, there's heaps of things that grow in lawns, and that's usually the bane of, of the person that wants a perfect lawn. So if you go to a hardware store, you'll see lots of products to kill broadleaf weeds. Now, in New Zealand, we've got a range of European and American herbs that are pretty at home in a lawn that isn't sprayed with herbicide. So there'll be things from like plantagos, which are, um, have a beautiful little flower, and they're actually dominating our system here at the moment. But you also get really um, cute little flowering plants. And uh, the lawn outside my office, for example, I went out there one day to count how many things were in our lawn, and I got up to about 35 plants, 35 species, before I, I had to go to a meeting, I think. And I thought, wow, actually, our... Our, our lawns in Auckland in particular are really diverse and every lawn will be different and that'll be based on whether it's dry or wet, fertile or infertile, sloped, flat, sunny in the shade. All of those factors will drive a different community of plants. That's why Meadows projects could work here because these things are here already and they're usually already in our lawns. It's just managing 
the lawn system so that they come to the fore, really, and they show how pretty they are, and we start to see them, I guess, value them as an important part of those, those ecosystems. So we're back in my backyard, and I'm having a good close look at my lawn. And Big Stanley really has a point about plant diversity. I mean, like, there's lots of grass here, but I can see tons of little clovers. There's little small ferns and flowering plants like daisies. Um, over, over there in a shady corner, I can see there's some um, native shrubs like kawakawa starting to sprout up. And if you look really closely, you can see it's all swarming with tiny little insects. It's like a miniature rainforest. It's beautiful. But I've got to admit, as soon as I sort of stand up and look back at it, a lot of that beauty vanishes. It's a complete mess. And if I let it keep growing, what are the neighbours going to think? That's a worry that Olivia Rook Devoy is very familiar with. My interest in this subject actually started, uh, I'd say, early 2018 when my one of my neighbours started mowing my lawn for me, my front lawn, and I couldn't figure out who it was. And for days and days I tried to catch him at it, and finally when I came home from work, he was out there at the front mowing my lawn, and so I got out of my car, really embarrassed, thanked him and left a box of chocolates in his post box. But I think it really highlights how there is a real cultural value to lawns and kind of like a social uh, contract we buy into with each other. Did, did your neighbour sort of explain why, why he was doing this? No, no, he was very polite, but there was uh, definitely an air of uh, disapproval, I'd say, because <laughs> I'm not the best lawnmower, I'll admit it myself. And Olivia says this kind of peer pressure for short, perfectly mowed lawns has a really long history. The history of lawns, it's uh, so interesting. Uh, it started in uh, aristocratic French and English gardens where it was a sign of uh, basically that you had enough money to spend on useless land. You had to hang cut the grass. The uh, lawnmower wasn't invented until the uh, late 19th century. And so we had this really uh, exclusive endeavour that really only opened up to the uh, suburban class in the early 20th century. So I think that as a uh, garden uh, aspect, it's really got a, quite a checkered history, I'd say. Why checkered? I feel that it's got roots in uh, class systems and it's been taken over to many of uh, many countries as a colonial baggage, I'd call it. Wherever they come from, a lot of us do have very intense emotions around lawns. Olivia's survey of a 1,000 Auckland households found roughly 80% noticed when their neighbours hadn't mowed. Just over half said they mowed the lawns regularly because they thought it looked better that way, while around 12% mostly mowed due to peer pressure. Chuck me down in that category. So if we want to mow less, there's significant social stigma that needs to be overcome. Beck Stanley has been thinking a lot about this in her role at the Botanic Gardens. We've aligned close clipped lawns with care and tidiness. And actually it's the opposite in terms of a meadow. It's actually people caring more about the environment, but it looks tight to lots of people like we're caring less. And I think that it's, a, it's something that should not be ignored because we've had this kind of concept of a British lawn and gardening in New Zealand for a few hundred years and it's what has been decided 
is the way um, urban settings and gardens should look. So it's a real sort of social phenomenon. And I, and I think that's why I say to people who want to start a meadow, if you want it in your front yard, talk to your neighbour. Let them know what you're doing. Let them know you're actually thinking about the environment and you're thinking about biodiversity and you're actually caring for the environment and that's what you're trying to do. You're not neglecting anything. And I think that's a really important part to meadows. And there's a, a really big um, piece of work done in the States some years ago now where um, the concept of cues to care came in, which is that if you have a meadow ecosystem or a low-mo, no-mo area, it's a good idea to mow something like a path through it and maybe a beautiful winding path where people get drawn in, not quite knowing where you're going to take them, or, or maybe mow the edges. Potentially also you could use signage, um, you know, this garden is for bugs, for example, to try and... Um, try and help people understand that you, you're, it's not that you don't care and it's not that you're neglecting your lawn, you're actually trying to do something better. Beck Stanley says educating your neighbours about the ecological value of reduced mowing can be a big step towards social acceptance. In a meadow where you're trying to promote these flowering plants, flowers of course provide food, so they're providing food for insects primarily, and at least in our garden we notice that Native bees, for example, harvest quite a bit of pollen from exotic plants. I've seen them particularly enjoying our edible garden and, and daylilies and things like that. So we know native bees do well with exotic plants. So you'll get more native invertebrates feeding on those flowers. But one interesting observation I've made in our meadow is one year I walked down there and I disturbed a flock of fantails. So a native insectivorous bird was in there on the ground a flock of them there was at least 20 yeah it was really surprising it's not something I actually thought would happen in my mind I had this idea people said that things like lizards would do very well in meadow ecosystems now I'm yet to see a lizard but I haven't looked and that's something we will be working on in the future but certainly I was surprised to see that and I was thinking that the fantails probably felt quite comfortable they certainly were finding food in the meadow and that was really delightful to see because this is something that people have become increasingly keen on. It's sort of attracting native birds into their garden with, you know, um, flowering shrubs and trees that these birds like to eat. But there are lots of insectivorous natives as well. And a meadows, are, you're sort of finding that meadows are a good way to bring those in. Yeah, potentially. And of course, everyone always forgets about the bugs, but they're a really important part of our biodiversity too. So the bugs, even in themselves, and you know, I've even thought about our meadow in terms of habitat for plants. So sometimes we think potentially native plants aren't, we're not really talking about native plants when we talk about meadows, but we do have native onion orchids coming up in our lawns, particularly in the wet places. And I think as they develop, we might find other native plants that can come in in some circumstances, again, depending on the environmental characteristics of the site. So, yeah, they, in terms of biodiversity, they're providing habitat for plants. Some of them will be native um, for invertebrates, both native and exotic. And then again, yes, those invertebrates are food. So as part of the food, food chain, um, those insectivorous birds will be in there. And again, like I said before, the, um, the lizards are probably there, and, and we'd love to do some studies to see that because they're going to be eating those bugs as well. And if you still aren't sold on the idea of a yard full of long grass, that's totally understandable. What if I told you you could keep that tidy, close-cropped look without all the hassle and damage of mowing? David Harris is the owner of No Mow. It's a Nelson-based nursery which exclusively grows ground cover alternatives to traditional lawns. And you guessed it, they don't need mowing. 
We have um, basically 13 different plants. The main sellers are uh, the Leptinella family, of which there are uh, four different types of Leptinella. Uh, Lobelias, or people who often know as Pratias. Celeria, which is a quite a hardy uh, plant, which looks like grass, feels like grass, but you don't have to mow it, and it ever grows to 20 mils high. We have four different types of thymes and a couple of varieties of mazes, as well as one one of the native ferns, Blackman penamarina. Most of our ground, the ground covers usually only grow to about 100 mils high at the maximum. Um, so they're low, flat, uh, rhizomian growing plants. So by that, they put out shoots um, along the top of the ground and then the shoots are put down roots from there and they just basically spread and grow like that. All these different plants have their own pros and cons. Celeria, for example, is very hardy and it can put up with regular foot traffic. It actually evolved to grow in tidal estuaries, so you can use salt as a kind of low-impact herbicide to control weeds. On the downside, it's slow-growing and it needs a lot of water to keep it alive. Some of the other species are quick-growing and drought-tolerant, but they don't stand up as well to regular foot traffic. But Dave says, in the right places, they can be an alternative for people who want to reduce the environmental impact of their lawn without sacrificing that tidy, close-cropped look. Ground covers aren't a silver bullet. Um, every so often I get people that they want something that doesn't need watering, doesn't need weeding, and it looks good all year round. And, um, yeah, it sounds really good, but it's a bit of a pipe dream. Um, ground covers, I, I sort of say to people, are a bit like uh, children and pets. If you put the time and effort in at the start, you end up with a really good result. And even if you go down the meadow route, it's not as simple as just letting the grass grow. Beck Stanley says meadows take time and effort, just like any other part of a garden. That's the other thing about a meadow, is they're an ecological system. So at first, once you stop mowing, the grasses will do really well. There's still a lot of food in the soil. They'll grow really, really tall. And they'll actually shade out all these other um, cute little flowering plants that are in there with them. So you do have to mow at the moment, our research is looking like about twice a year is really good for diversity. The other thing you might want to do with a meadow is, is check that weeds aren't coming into it. So Auckland's got a lovely climate and we're always um, thinking about what weeds might seed into our meadow and do well without mowing. So you might want to do a bit of a survey. Also, when you're thinking of a meadow, your mind's probably throwing up images of fields full of flowers. They're swarming with bumblebees and butterflies. And that's probably not what you're going to get, at least not without a lot of work. Now, there are these things called pictorial meadows, which people get quite confused about. I, I did too at first. So the meadows you sometimes see in um, English gardening magazines, and they particularly became popular around the 2012 London Olympics, where large areas of meadows were created in urban London. Now, they were pictorial meadows. They're meadows that are seeded in, so they're like at huge annual planting beds where every year they seed in poppies and cornflowers and, and beautiful things. Now, that's not the kind of work we're doing here. You could choose to make one of those at home if you wanted, but that would be really labour-intensive. You'd have to seed that um, and mow it and manage that system. So, no, they're not free of management. Of course, one big reason a lot of people might want to keep a traditional lawn is for the kids. It's hard to play backyard cricket if the grass is up to your chin, and a lot of these no-mow grass alternatives can't put up with being trampled on. 
That said, maybe your kids might enjoy a meadow. One of my colleagues had a small child ask her one day, she pointed to the meadow, the child pointed to the meadow and asked my colleague, is there fairies in there? (laughs) And my colleague said, I'm not sure, you should go and have a look. And I thought, wow, okay, that kid is about as high as our meadow. So when she walked in there, the grass was at her head height. So for her, imagine that experience, completely different to us. She wasn't sort of as much walking through it as kind of being amongst it. And I thought, that's cool. And could we take kids to our trial meadow and give them, you know, a little quadrat, a little five by five meter um, square and say, put that down here and count how many flowers you see or count how many bugs you see and then take them to a close clipped lawn and say, do the same here. And then we could rate, you know, what we saw, why we might have seen it there, and maybe a a fun rating, you know, what was the most fun place to hang out in today, and get feedback from kids, because, you know, they're the future, and if these ecosystems are going to be part of our urban environment in the future, then, you know, they're the people that we want to get feedback from and and see, um, you know, if they're going to enjoy these ecosystems for their multiple benefits as well. So look, everyone I talked to for this programme agreed there's no one-size-fits-all solution for lawns. But in the future, they'd like to see a lot more variety. You know, maybe our parks have that traditional green carpet in some spot for picnics and sport, but there are other places with alternative ground covers like Solaria and more wild-looking meadows to keep the insects and birds happy. As for my backyard... Well, I guess I'm going to experiment with a meadow. So now I'm off to the neighbours to explain I'm not a lazy bugger. I'm just looking out for the birds and bees. Maybe I'll offer to let their kids come over and go hunting for fairies once in a while. This episode of Our Changing World was presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. If you like the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can also subscribe to get it delivered to your device absolutely free every week. Also, check out RNZ's other awesome podcasts, including Black Sheep, which is a series I produce about the rogues and villains of New Zealand history. You can find that on the RNZ webpage, rnz.co.nz. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.